0: Section 2 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 3, From the Accession of Nicholas II Until the Present Day, by Shimon Duvnov, translated by Israel Friedlander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim, Manikid Baisho, Portugal. Chapter 31, The Accession of Nicholas II, Part 2. 4. The economic collapse of Russian Jewry The result of all these persecutions was complete economic collapse of Russian Jewry. Speaking generally, the economic structure of the Russian Jews experienced violent upheavals during the first years of Nicholas II's reign. The range of Jewish economic endeavor, circumscribed though it was, was narrowed more and more. In 1894, The law placing the liquor trade under government control was put into effect by Vite, the minister of finance. Catering to the prejudices of the ruling spheres of Russia, Vite had already endeavored to convince Alexander III that the liquor state monopoly would have the effect of completely undermining Jewish exploitation, the latter being primarily bound up with the sale of liquor in the towns and villages in view of this the monopoly was introduced with particular zeal in the western governments where a little later in the course of eighteen ninety six to eighteen ninety eight during the reign of nicholas the second all private houses were replaced by official liquor stores so-called imperial bar rooms in consequence of this reform tens of thousands of jewish families who had derived their livelihood either directly from the liquor trade or indirectly from occupations connected with it, such as the keeping of inns and hostelries were deprived of their means of subsistence. It goes without saying that, as far as the moral aspect of the problem was concerned, the best elements of Russian Jewry welcomed this reform, which bade fair to wipe out an ugly stain on the excursion of the Jewish people, the liquor traffic bequeathed to the Jews by ancient Poland. Known as the most sober people on earth, the Jews had been placed in the tragic position that thousands of them, in their search for a piece of bread, was forced to serve as a medium for promoting the pernicious Russian drunkenness. The memory of the days when the Jewish saloon was the breeding place of pogroms in which the Russian peasants and burghers filled themselves with Jewish alcohol to fortify themselves in their infamous work of demolishing the homes of the Jews, was still fresh in their minds. Cheerfully, would the Jewish people have yielded its monopoly of the record trade to the Russian barroom keepers and to the Russian government, who seemed genuinely attracted toward it, had it only been allowed to pursue other methods Of earning a livelihood. But in closing the avenue of the liquor traffic to 200,000 Jews, the government did not even think of removing the special restrictions which barred their way to other lines of endeavor. Having been robbed of the scanty livelihood they derived from their country inns, thousands of rural victims of the state monopoly flocked into the cities, only to clash with the host of urban victims of the same reform who had also been deprived of their means of sustenance. The growth of the proletariat within the Pale of Settlement, both in business and in the trade, assumed appalling proportions. The observers of economic life in the Pale, such as the well-known Russian economist Subotin and others, called attention to the frightful increase of populism in that region. Between 1894 and 1898, The number of Jewish families in need of assistance increased 27 percent as compared with the former years. In 1897, the number of Jews without definite occupations amounted in certain cities to 50 percent and more. The number of destitute Jews applying for help before the Passover festival reached unheard of proportions amounting in Odessa, Vilna, Minsk, Kovno, and other cities to 40 and even 50% of the total Jewish population. The crop failures in 1899 and 1900 in the south of Russia resulted in a terrible famine among the impoverished Jewish masses. Whereas the peasants, who suffered from the same calamity, received financial assistance from the government, the Jews had to resort to self-help to the collection of funds throughout the empire to which only here and there liberal christians added their mights many of these jewish proletariats were willing to take up agriculture but the temporary rules of eighteen eighty two blocked their way to the countryside and made it impossible for them to buy or even lease a piece of land prominent jews of st petersburg such as baron ginsburg and others petitioned the government to allow the Jews to purchase small parcels of land for personal use, but after long deliberations, their petition was rejected. Thus, at the end of the 19th century, the ruling spheres of the Russian Empire proved more anti-Semitic than at the beginning of the same century, when the government of Alexander I and even that of Nicholas I had endeavored to promote agriculture among the Jews, and had established the Jewish agricultural colonies in the south of Russia. The mania of oppression went so far as to prohibit the Jews from buying or leasing parcels of land which were part of a city but happened to be situated outside the city line. A rich Jew of Minsk by the name of Polak petitioned in 1897 the local town council to sell him a piece of suburban property for the establishment of a Jewish agricultural farm but his petition was refused. The refusal was thoroughly consistent. For the fact that the Jews were forbidden to own land made the training of Jews in the art of agriculture entirely superfluous. It may be added that this prohibition of land ownership was upheld by the government even in the case of Jewish students who had completed their course in the School of the Jewish Agricultural Farm near Odessa. Similar methods were employed to check the development of arts and crafts, which were widely represented among the Jews but stood on a very low technical level. Even the efforts to organize mutual help among the working classes were blocked by the government in all kinds of ways. The well-known Jewish millionaire Brodsky of Kiev, wishing to assist the toiling masses without distinction of creed, offered to open a trade bank in the city and to contribute toward that purpose the sum of one hundred twenty thousand rubles. When in eighteen ninety five he submitted the constitution of the proposed bank to the local authorities for their approval, he was required to insert a clause to the effect that the directors and the chairmen of the bank council should always be christians and that the council itself should not include more than one jewish member to this insolent demand broski made the only fitting retort being myself a jew i cannot possibly agree that the constitution of an establishment which is to be founded with the money contributed by me and which is to bear my name shall contain restrictions affecting my co-religionists He naturally withdrew his offer, and Kiev was deprived of a trade bank. The fact that the failure of the project also affected the Christian artisans did not disturb the authorities in the least. It was enough of compensation that the Jews were made to suffer, not only materially but also morally, and the purpose of the highly placed Jew baiters was accomplished. Five. Professional and Educational Restrictions In the domain of those liberal professions to which the Jewish intellectuals, being barred from entering the civil service, were particularly attracted, the law went to almost any length in its endeavor to keep them closed to the Jews. The legal career had been blocked to them ever since the passage of the law of 1889 which made the admission of a properly qualified Jews to the Bar, dependent upon the granting of a special permission by the Minister of Justice. In the course of a whole decade, the Minister found it possible to grant this permission only to one Jew, who, it may be added, had sat on the bench for 25 years. There were two or three such relics dating back to the liberal era of Alexander II. In consequence of this provision, the proportion of Jews at the Bar, which prior to the enactment of the restriction had reached from 14 to 22 percent, was reduced to 9 percent. In 1897, a committee appointed by the government was considering the proposal to place the disability on the statute books and to establish a 10 percent norm for Jewish lawyers the reason advanced by the committee for the proposed restriction of the distinctly medieval variety the conduct of a lawyer is determined by the impulses of his will of his conscience in other words that sphere of his inner life which finds its manifestation in religion now the admission of jews constitutes a menace resulting from views peculiar to the jewish race which are contrary to christian morality subsequently the champions of christian morality on the step of the ministry of justice bethought themselves that it might even be better and nobler to stop the admission of jews to the bar altogether and the proposal regarding the percentage norm was tabled hundreds upon hundreds of young jews who had completed their legal education at the universities or who had acted as assistants to sworn attorneys saw once more their hopes for the legitimate pursuit of their profession vanished into the air. Jewish physicians were restricted to private practice and robbed of their right to occupy a government or a public position. Even the autonomous sense for institutions adopted more and more the practice of refusing to appoint Jews, and very frequently the printed advertisements of the Jamst for offerings, medical positions, contained the stipulation Kromie Yevrejev," except the Jews. The scholastic education of the Jewish children was throttled in the same pitiless manner as theretofore. The disgraceful schoolbomb which had been introduced in 1887 performed with ever increasing relentlessness its task of dooming to spiritual death the Jewish youth who were knocking at the doors of the gymnasia and universities. In the beginning of eighteen ninety eight, the post of Minister of Public Instruction, which had been occupied by Dialanov, was entrusted to Professor Bogolepov of Moscow. While Dialanov had been occasionally inclined to soften the rigor of the school norm. It was commonly rumored that this good-natured dignitary could not bear to see a woman cry, and tearful entreaties of the mothers of the rejected scholars made him sanction the admission of a certain number of Jewish children over and above the established percentage norm. His successor, Boglepov, an academic teacher who had become a gendarme of education, was impervious to any sentiment of pity. In the course of the three years of his administration, he not only refused to admit the slightest departure from the established norm, but attempted to curtail it still further. Thus, orders were issued to calculate the percentage norm of the Jewish applicants for admission to the universities not in its relation to the total number of the annual admissions but separately for each faculty 1898 to 1899 this provision was designed to limit the number of Jewish students who flocked to the medical and legal faculties since in view of the fact that the Jews were entirely barred from appointment in the general educational institutions the other faculties did not offer them even a sporting chance of earning a livelihood The ruthlessness displayed by the Ministry of Public Instruction towards the Jewish youth was officially justified on the ground that certain elements among them were affiliated with the revolutionary movement which just at that time had assumed particular intensity in the Russian student body. This sentiment was openly voiced in a circular of the ministry issued on May 26, 1901 which makes the following statement the disorders which took place at the end of the nineties in the institutions of higher learning testified to the fact that the instigators of these disorders were to a large extent persons of non-russian extraction himself the reactionary minister of enlightenment fell a victim of this agitation among the student body He died from the bullet of a terrorist who happened to be of unadulterated russian extraction his successor general vanovsky 1901 to 1902 though endeavoring to assuage the university disorders by a policy of kindly solicitude maintained the former uncompromising attitude as far as the jews were concerned in view of the fact that in spite of all restrictions the ratio of Jewish students at all universities actually exceeded the norm prescribed by law. The new minister decreed that the percentage of Jewish admissions be temporarily curtailed in the following proportion. 2% for the capitals instead of the former 3%. 3% for the universities outside the Pale of settlement instead of 5%. And 7% for the Pale of settlement instead of 10%. Even the restrictions placed upon the admission of the Jews to the gymnasia was intensified. In 1901, Jewish children who had graduated from a pro-gymnasium were forbidden to continue their education in the advanced classes of a gymnasium unless there was a free Jewish vacancy within the percentage norm, a truly miraculous contingency. The same policy was extended to the commercial schools established with funds which were provided by the merchant class and the bulk of which came from Jews. In the commercial schools maintained by the commercial associations, Jewish children were admitted only in proportion to the contributions of the Jewish merchants towards the upkeep of the particular school. In private commercial schools, however, percentages of all kinds, varying from 10 to 50 percent, were fixed in the case of Jewish pupils. This provision had the effect that Jewish parents were vitally interested in securing the entrance of as many Christian children as possible in order to increase thereby the number of Jewish vacancies. Occasionally, a Jewish father, in the hope of creating a vacancy for his son, would induce a Christian to send his boy to a commercial school, though the latter, as a rule, offered little attraction for the Christian population by undertaking to defray all expenses connected with his education yet many jewish children though enduring all these humiliations found themselves outside the doors of the intermediate russian schools it is worthy of note that in this attempt at the spiritual extermination of the jewish children by barring them from intermediate educational institutions The Russian law followed strictly the ancient rule of the pharaohs, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him, but if it be a daughter, then she shall live. The government schools for girls were opened to the Jewish population without any restriction, and the influx of Jesus to this gymnasia was only checked unofficially by the anti-Semitic authorities of this or that institution, thereby turning the tide of applicants in the direction of private girls' schools. But as far as the higher schools were concerned, Jewish girls were subjected to the same restriction as the boys. The higher course for women and pedagogic courses in St. Petersburg restricted the admission of GSEs to 5%. The Constitution of Medical Institute for Women, founded in 1895, provided at first for the entire exclusion of Jews. But in 1897, the doors of this institution were opened to the Haitian tribe just enough to admit them to the extent of 3%. It was scarcely to be expected that the Jewish youth who had been locked out of the Russian school should entertain particularly friendly sentiments toward a regime which wasted their lives, humiliated their dignity, and solid their souls. The Jewish lad, driven from the doors of gymnasia, became an embittered extern who was forced to study at home and from year to year present himself for examination before the school authorities. An immense host of young men and women who found their way blocked to the higher educational institutions in Russia went abroad, flocking to foreign universities and higher professional schools where they learned to estimate at its full value a regime which in their own country denied them the advantages granted to them outside of it a large number of these college youths returned home permeated with revolutionary ideas leaving witnesses to the sagacity of government which saw its reason for existence in the suppression of all revolutionary strivings End of section 2.